from the beautiful and palatial Ultimate Sports Talk Radio Studios. Good evening, everyone. I'm Dave Mitchell. Welcome to another Thursday night and another edition of the Ultimate Sports Talk Show. Glad to have you along this evening, and boy, has it been a couple of days in the northeastern Ohio area with the Cleveland Indians bowing out of the wild card chase last night. And, of course, the Cleveland Browns taking on the Buffalo Bills this evening. We've got a couple of people on the show this evening. Two big interviews for you tonight. Our first guest is going to be Tony Lastoria from Indians Baseball Insider. And then we're also going to be talking to my co-host on the Monday night Ohio Baseball Weekly Show, Mark Donahue. We're going to be talking to them about Indians Baseball and Cincinnati Reds Baseball. But the Cleveland Browns face off with the Buffalo Bills tonight. And Jim Brown is going to be honored into the Browns' ring of fame. Of course, that happened a couple of years ago, but because of his feud with Mike Holmgren, Jim didn't make the celebration, so they're going to do it again tonight at halftime. And what a night in Cleveland this is going to be. Thanks to Buffalo's 23-20 upset over the defending Super Bowl champion Baltimore Ravens last week, and the Browns' equally surprising 17-6 win over in-state rival Cincinnati, both teams are 2-2, two and two, and riding a little crest of momentum. Also, these clubs have a collection of pretty interesting young players who are eager to show off their wares in front of the national cable TV audience. Buffalo head coach Doug Marone is downplaying the fact that it's also his primetime debut as an NFL head coach. Same thing for his head coaching partner across the sidelines tonight, Rob Chudzinski of the Cleveland Browns, but he recognizes that it's a big deal to his players, particularly the youngest guys like rookies E.J. Manuel, Robert Woods, and Kiko Alonzo. Brian Hoyer, Cleveland's third-string quarterback who jumped over second-stringer Jason Campbell when Brandon Whedon got hurt a couple of years ago, gets another start tonight, his third in a row. Hoyer is a native of the city of Cleveland has really energized the Browns fans. He was a backup to Tom Brady in New England for three years and then a backup to Kevin Cobb last year in Arizona. He's only had three NFL starts, but in his last two against Minnesota and Cincinnati last weekend, he's engineered victories for Browns fans. When the Browns traded running back Trent Richardson two weeks ago, of course, I went off the deep end. He was the number three overall pick in the 2012 draft. It looked as if the Browns were running up the white flag on the season after an 0-2 start, but instead, the team signed ex-Bill Willis McGahee to take Richardson's place. Hoyer was giving the starting nod, and the Browns have come alive on offense, with Hoyer working well with tight end Jordan Cameron and wide receivers Josh Gordon and Devon Bess. The Bills' offense will be challenged by a stout Cleveland defense that ranks third in the NFL in fewest yards allowed, and he's held opponents to 2.9 yards against the rush. That's the lowest in the league. And if C.J. Spiller and or Fred Jackson can't play, or at least they can't play competitively due to the injuries that they have sustained, the task will really be difficult for Manuel, who's still finding his way a quarterback and hasn't played a consistently sound game yet. Browns coach Rob Chudzinski talks about the challenges earlier this week that Buffalo presents. Very good football team. Had impressive wins against Carolina and Baltimore, uh, right down the wire against New England and the Jets. Uh, they're doing things that they need to in order to win and doing a good job of that. 
They have an outstanding running game, versatile young quarterback. They can make plays and uh, aggressive, opportunistic defense. Uh, we'll need to be at our best uh, for this game. Our focus has been good. Uh, yesterday we got started, as I mentioned. Our guys are excited about playing Thursday night uh, and having that opportunity, and we'll be excited to see our fans again at home uh, for that game. Uh, Thursday night, again, is a special night. Uh, we're honoring Jim Brown, the greatest player of all time, and certainly the greatest Cleveland Brown of all time. And uh, when you grow up as a Browns fan, uh, it's the first thing you're taught. Uh, we're excited about that. Uh, he's been great in terms of having him back here in the organization, been very supportive. Uh, personally, I've enjoyed the interactions that I've had uh, with Jim, uh, him sharing his wisdom, and uh, uh, some of his perspective has really helped me. And I know it's helped the guys on the team, him being around uh, and being uh, somebody that they can talk to as well. Uh, and you can't say a good enough good enough things or enough things about the good that he's done in the community uh, and around the country uh, for young people as well. So I'm excited for him. The Browns in first place is an oddity at this point in any season. Since 1999, when they returned, they've only been in first place once after six games in the year. A win tonight would leave them in first place alone in the AFC North, a spot they haven't been in years. Kickoff is at 8.25 tonight on the NFL Network, about 25 minutes after we sign off here this evening. So just kick back and enjoy the game. The Cleveland Browns entertain the Buffalo Bills. Should be an interesting one. We're going to check the NFL schedule and the college football schedule for this weekend coming up in just a little bit. But right now what we want to do is flip sports and head over to the baseball side of things where the wild card playoff games in Major League Baseball got underway this week. Cincinnati lost to the Pirates Tuesday night, while the Indians fell last night to Tampa Bay at Progressive Field. What will happen with both teams? Well, let's start with our first guest here this evening, and that is Tony Lastoria. He's our guest tonight from Indians Baseball Insider and Fox Sports Ohio. And let's bring in Tony Lastoria and talk about what's going on with the Indians. Tony Lastoria, our guest on tonight's show. Tony, thanks for joining us here this evening. I guess uh, the thing about today is is that it's after the season. Everybody is kind of in the doldrums over the loss last night to Tampa Bay and the season coming to an end. Give us your reflections on last night's game and the season as a whole. Yeah, it's really it's, it's unfortunate that uh, it came to such a sudden end, just as uh, Reds fans uh, know as well the, the previous night that you kind of go through 162 games and fight your way to get a playoff berth, and you know it's one and done. I mean, that's that's the unfortunate reality of, of how this system is set up. Uh, where with the two wild card teams now, you have to have that. Pl- it's, it's pretty much the play-in game um, to get to the to the real postseason. And you know, I know there's some proponents that want it to be a you know an actual series, you know, maybe three games or this and that, but. What it does, it just really puts the, the focus on, on the division winners. And if you want to get to a real series, you got to win your division. And you know what? It just makes it a little more appealing and exciting uh, to have like those elimination games leading into the playoffs. So it's it's amazing how you go from the high of clinching a playoff spot on Sunday for Indians fans to the low of having your season come to an end. But ultimately, you, you know, it, it's hard not to be um, very impressed with the year they had. And hopefully, there's a good future going forward. I mean, you put it into context, Tony, and 92 wins in a baseball season 
is an outstanding year, even if they get beat in the playoffs or not, and that's exactly what the Indians did this year. Yeah, I mean, I mean that's the big thing is, you know, 24-game uh, improvement, uh, win improvement. I mean, actually 48 games in the standings if you look at it that way. Um, but, you know, it, 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 you know, based what they did, I mean, really, and they're, they're a year kind of ahead of where they were supposed to be. I think a lot of people didn't take them seriously this year. Uh, people thought maybe, you know what, if things went well, they would win, you know, 83, 85 games. But there was, there was just too many question marks with the starting pitching and, you know, there was still some issues with the, uh, with the lineup this man. But I think over the course of this year, the Indians found out a lot of things. It was a very successful season, not just on the wins, um, scenario. But they found some guys. Uh, I think they found some potential stars, uh, with Jan Gomes and Danny Salazar, uh, some potential, um, fixtures in the bullpen with Brian Shaw and, and, and Mark Zepchinski and, and, uh, you know, um, and also guys like Carlos Santana continues to improve, Jason Kidness, Michael Brantley, you know, and, and they, and they did all of that in the midst of the three big guns as Drew Cabrera and Nick Swiss from Michael Bourne having awful seasons. And then also having, uh, you know, starting pitchers, every starting pitcher, um, that started, you know, that made the most starts for them, they all missed at least a month of the season with injuries. And, you know, the back end of the bullpen with Perez and Pistano had terrible years. So amongst all of that, they still went out 192 games, which is really a tribute to the, how deep this team was, 1 through 25. And Frank Cona, you know, just got in the ship. Tony, I want to get into some of the players here in just a few minutes, but one of the reasons I wanted to have you on tonight was some of the tweets that were made about a week ago from you in concern to the the way the Indians were being covered by the radio stations. Of course, the, the uh, home station for the Indians, the flagship station, is WTAM and has been for years, with the exception of about a three- or four-year lull when it went to WKNR. Then you've got KNR, the ESPN station, and the, the CBS station, 92.3, and they're both the exclusive stations for the Cleveland Browns. Is there any talk, before we get into really some specifics here, about the Indians leaving TAM? And, and how do you feel about the coverage the Indians get around the city? Yeah, it is unfortunate. Well, first off, the Indians aren't nearly WTN. Uh, they just signed a new deal before this season to stay with WTN. So that's, I can't remember how many years it was, but it's, I think it's like six or whatever years. So they're going to be at WTN for, for for a while. And, you know, I, I'm kind of lukewarm about that, uh, mostly because it's not a, it's not a sports talk radio station. It's a news politics with some, Sports talk radio, and I'm, you know, unfortunately, the casual fan does not listen to news and sports. Uh, you know, the casual fan, um, or, or actually the hardcore fans, are, are listening to, to uh, WKNR and 92.3 The Fan uh, pretty much all day. And it's not a, you know, it's not very good to have your baseball team on a news and politics radio station, um, you know, for to get that casual interest in the, in the follow of the team, so to speak, you know, from those diehards and also the casual people. So. It probably would be better for them from a from a standpoint of exposure to be on those sports talk radio stations. I mean, look, people, if they want to follow the Indians, they're going to go wherever they're on the radio. If they want to listen to the game on the radio, that's what they're going to go to. Um, it's just unfortunate because what happens is it just seems like um, now, now that the Browns moved over to uh, 92.3 and um, the WKNR, there is more of a focus by those by those radio stations to really – push those, you know, to really push the Browns. And it was really, it's really been evident over the last 
uh, month, or especially since the season started for the NFL, where um, even though the Indians have made this push in September, it's been, you know, Browns talk um, nonstop. So it, it would definitely help if they were on a different um, station from that regard. But, you know, and that's more just from the from the fact that people talking about them, not really listening to games. You know, like I said, you can listen to games on so many different platforms now. That that's not really the problem. It's just the it's just the interactive ability with the fans, and you can't really do it on WTN where you can't on those other stations twenty four seven. Tony, I've said all year long, and I hear the announcers on K and R and ninety two three say that they just don't get phone calls about the Indians, and that's why they talk about the Browns. And and my point it really is, Tony, is that they don't get the opportunity to talk about the Indians because the Browns are constantly being pushed. Is this frustrating to the Indians in the front office? I don't think it's necessarily frustrating. Well, I think the problem there is the reason why they don't get calls is because the hosts don't push it. I mean, it's not really in their, you know, in, in their introductory monologues and this and that where, you know, where they're trying to create topics and create um, things to talk about. And I think that, you know, and I've even talked to one radio personality uh, from one of those stations who thinks that when it comes to baseball, that those radio personalities uh, in, collectively amongst both stations are lazy when it comes to baseball. They just don't know the game, uh, whereas football is so easy to talk about. There are so many things. You know, it has such a wide uh, fan base, and it obviously appeals to a great many people. I mean, really, it's become a national pastime of this uh of, of, of this country over the last uh, 15, 20 years, and especially the last 10. And a lot of that is fantasy football and all the, you know, and, and the game really does appeal on that week-to-week basis. But, you know, baseball, um, it, 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 you know, it's a game of numbers, and there's so many different facets to the game, and it's why I, I always found a you know, fascinating game. And you got to be on your A game when you're talking about it, and I don't think there's a lot of people that, um, really, really dive into it and really understand the game enough to really get into all different transactions and roster implications and all these different scenarios that, um, you know, talk show hosts maybe in other baseball cities do. Do you really consider Cleveland as a Browns town, or do you take Terry Francona as his word on, on the commercials that this is a tribe town? What, what's your feelings, Tony? Well, Francona has to say what's put on the card in front of him. But, you know, it's one of those things where, yeah, I mean, no, look, it's, the, it, it's a football town. It always has been. Even in the 90s when the Indians were selling out to Jake and, uh, you know, you know they're going to playoff, uh, game, you know, seasons uh, year after year and, and World Series contenders. Um, even though the Browns were gone, it, it was still Brownstown. And, and when the Browns came back, it's just, it is how, it is what it is. It is a football town first. Now, this town has shown in the past that there is room for a second team, but unfortunately, the, you know, the Cavaliers are still that second team. And, um, you know, maybe we'll see things change if the, if the Cavaliers, I, mean, I don't want them to do poorly, don't, don't get me wrong, but if they do struggle over the next year or two, I think that right now the fans are still kind of, um, you know, believing in the, in, in the play and what that, with the front office and ownership, and if it comes to fruition, it's great. But if not, you may see some people um, kind of jump ship like talking with the Indians. And if the Indians continue to win and do well, you, you may see that teeter back to where now the Indians are second in town and, and maybe they get more support. Because really the Cavaliers are pretty well supported as well. Also on the radio as well. I think that they get a lot of talk. I mean, people are already talking about them. And uh, the preseason hasn't even started. You know, you, you know to spring, I think their uh, training camp starts 
this week or something, or it started a day or, day or so ago. So it, it definitely is a Brownstown. I mean, if I was to put a percentage on it, I'd say it's like 60 to 75 percent Brownstown, and that the remaining 25 to 40 percent is divvied up amongst the Indians and the Cavs. Yeah, and Tony, nobody's been more critical about the Dolans than me over the last couple of years, but you've also got to give the good with the bad. And the Dolans went out and did last winter what they had to do with Francona, Swisher, and, and, and even Bourne. And I'll tell you what, I think they got a lot more credibility now with the Tribe fans after this season than they had going into the year. Would you agree? I think it's a start. Um, I, I always felt that. I mean, everybody has their opinion on it, but I always felt that uh, Dolan's, in a lot of ways, got an unfair uh, shake in this town, simply because of the fact that they came in right at the end of the 90s when payrolls and all this stuff went absolutely through the roof. And that's why I think Jacob sold the team to begin with, because, you know, a lot of people always forget. I mean, I mean, if you look at the Dolans and their payroll, they've got like, yeah, um, every year they've had the team except for one or two, and they had those two rebuilding years in, uh, oh, uh, in uh, 2010 and 2003. Um, they've had super, I mean, higher payrolls than Dick Jacobs ever had, um, and, as an owner. I mean, you know, you know, Dick Jacobs last year as owner, he had like a $77 million payroll, and a lot of that was, uh, was subsidized by $60 million in stock that he sold, uh, to Indians fans. Prior to that, he never had a payroll of about fifty-five, fifty-eight million uh, as the owner, and and, and that's really it, they were still top five, but that's just an indication of how the game had not gone crazy with the spending up to that point. And uh, they, they've unfortunately been stuck in this you know last ten, fifteen years of, of the growth of player salaries. And, you know, where average players now are getting twelve, thirteen, fifteen million a year, whereas Back in the '90s, you know, a, a big contract with Albert Bell signing for five years, fifty million after the '96 season. I mean, it's amazing when you think about what five years, fifty million gets now versus what it got then. And you know, I, I think that um, you know, uh, Dolans definitely have uh, put their foot forward. Problem is, the fans didn't really respond this year. I mean, the attendance was just it was worse than last year, which is amazing. Uh, they actually drew less fans this year than, than they did in 2012. When they went sixty-eight ninety-four, so it um, it's not a good sign when when your attendance goes down and your payroll went up, and uh, and and they signed a new uh, TV deal and got all this money that they that they that, you know put in the team, but no one responded. And you know it's not it, it's just not a good situation when you're spending and winning, but no one is coming. I know they sold out the wild card game, but they got to you know those gate receipts are the you know. You know, the, you, you are are the bloodline uh, for this team to, to have any success. To have any success as far as retaining players and getting players, and I know that you know TV contracts and national TV deals help out a lot, but there's still the gate receipts that uh, really are the separator for teams. Tony, I'm going to throw some names out at you as we conclude this interview, and I'm just going to go shotgun some names, and I want to get your thoughts on what you think the Indians will do with them in the upcoming season. Lonnie Hall. You know, I think that's an interesting situation. Uh, last night, where the heck was that all year? I mean, the guy has three great swings. I mean, he showcased that swing that uh, you know people love so much in the minors, and he just it's that it's that it's that inconsistency that that he's had a problem with. So I think that uh, he's a guy that's still in the mix next year. But they're going to look to 
potentially platoon them uh, next year with somebody. I think they're going to limit his exposure to left-handed pitching as they have been, uh, potentially platoon them with Aviles, or find another option if, if one presents itself. As Drupal Cabrera. You know, that's an interesting uh, situation with him. Obviously, he's in a freezing year, going to make $10 million next year. Uh, you know, I, I know, and I, I kind of tweeted about it today, where a lot, and I'm, I'm probably as down on him as anybody else, but you, know, you kind of kind try to keep things objective. You know, I was, I try to remind fans of how bad uh, they felt about Baldo Jimenez at this time last year, and look at what he did in his free agent year. Uh, you know, a lot of times you see guys bounce back, come back with big years in their free agent year, and I, I'm kind of expecting the same thing from Cabrera. I mean, you know, maybe not a huge year, but I think he bounces back to, to that 2009-2011 kind of form. Chris Perez. I think he's all but gone. Uh, I just thought I see no way they can tender that. Uh, you know, well, he's not a free agent, but he will be because he's up for his final year of arbitration. And considering what he's done uh, with the damage with the fan base and the damage to the front office, um, and also the uh, all the off the field stuff that comes with him, he's not a guy that's worth ten million dollars um, in, in arbitration next year uh, to be an average closer. So. Yeah, I think he'll be, he'll be closing or setting up for somebody else next year for sure. Ubaldo Jimenez. That is an interesting, another interesting situation. I, you know, another guy that, you know, he, you know, talk about a guy to turn it around and put it together at the right time. I mean, this is a guy that <laughs> at this time last year, people were even wondering if they didn't pick up his option. And then, uh, also, um, whether or not he would stick in the rotation, to, you know, the, you know, to start the season, and look at he went out and had a very mediocre first half, but boy, did he turn it on in the second half. And considering he has four out of his six years, he's been very good. He's been over thirty starts a season, and every year, uh, he he hauls innings. He's durable, and he's got that stuff. And teams might believe that he kind of turned the corner. This guy is heading for a huge deal in the offseason. Like he might be the most sought after free agent pitcher. And, uh, I mean, obviously the Indians have a, have a mutual option on him, which they will pick up. He will decline it. And no offer from the qualifying offer, which he likely will decline that as well. Um, with, he, he's heading to a five, at least a five year deal. And, you know, with the insane money that's going to get thrown around this offseason because of all the other national TV money being put into play. I would not be surprised if he gets ninety to a hundred million dollars because somebody, somebody out there is going to overpay because they're dead because they're desperate for starting pitching. Scott Casimir, you know he had a great bounce back here. I mean, talk about finding a diamond in the rough. You know, they signed him for a, on a one-year minor league contract. I think he made a million dollars this year uh, on a major league deal. Talk about you know getting bang for your buck. Guy that uh, I think he's, I think. He's the guy they're going to look to, you know, between him and Jimenez, uh, he's the guy, Casimir, that they're going to look to bring back. Uh, he's, you know, he's not going to command a four or five year deal. I think, uh, and he's not going to command, you know, 12, 13, 15 million per year. He's a guy I think that, um, that, that they will look to retain, and I, I give a better than average chance that they do retain him. You know, two, two years, you know, or, or maybe two years plus an option. Um, for you know around eight to ten million dollars a year, I think is very very possible. Two names from the minor leagues. You know who one of them is going to be, but the first one I'm going to ask you about is Trevor Bauer. Yeah, that you know, 
you know, the season, there were some disappointments and some, obviously, some guys that we talked about that, that really came out of nowhere this year. But this is a guy that, it's amazing to think about. When the Indians traded for him, everybody kind of thought that he was going to be a, a fixture in the rotation at some point this season. And look at that. I mean, even with uh, Cabrera and Swisher and Bourne struggling, and then Power going out there and not even really having any impact on this team this year. They went out and won 92 games. So this is a guy that I think that he, you know, a full off season uh, with the Indians, uh, time to kind of just settle in. I think he's going to uh, bounce back and make sure you have a solid year. But there are some very big concerns about that command going forward. I mean, you know, the stuff is there. The makeup is there. It's just a big question mark if, if that delivery he does works or not and if he can command the fastball enough to have uh, consistent success in the big league. So, you know, the Indians had time with them. And they look, they have options on him so they can stick him in the minors again if they want to next year, which would be very well will start in the minor league at Columbus next year. I don't see any way he's going to be the fifth starter in open the year. So uh, they've got some time, but he's going to be a valuable piece for them, obviously, going forward because cause they need to hit on that trade and have him turn into at least a middle of rotation starter. Okay, Francisco Lindor. Yeah, this is uh, he's going to be an interesting one to follow next year. I mean, it's unfortunate the back injury cropped up in August for him and kind of sidelined him because I think he would have gone out and played in the Arizona Fall League or or potentially in winter ball somewhere to get him some some experience, get some top level uh, competition. Uh, he's all but certain to probably he's all but certain to start next year at Double A Akron. Um, you know anything can happen, but um, I I think but and from that point, I think he's an option in Cleveland if he's healthy and he's doing what he can do. He's an option in Cleveland pretty much any time from May on next year. It just depends on what happens with Cabrera this off season or in-season next year if he's injured or if he gets traded. Um, but he's obviously the heir apparent at shortstop. And I think at some point next year he will be up, and then that transition will be made by the end of next season. So, uh, yeah, he's uh, – you know, and, and, and that's a good situation to be in uh, when you have Cabrera struggling and a free agent to be. They do have that internal option at that position to kind of replace him. And arguably he could be just as effective or better than Cabrera right now. Tony Lastoria, our guest tonight on the Ultimate Sports Talk Show. He's from Indians Baseball Insider and Fox Sports Ohio. You can also follow Tony on Twitter, at Tony IBI. Well, then there is the Reds. Their season is over also. Pittsburgh outfielder Marlon Byrd, a July acquisition by the Pirates from the Mets, helped start the Pirates off on Tuesday night with a homer in his first playoff at bat. As Fox Sports baseball analyst Ken Rosenthal says, the Reds actually could have stopped the Pirates from getting Bird. Well, I received a text from an executive seconds after that home run, and the executive asked, how could they not have blocked him? And what he was referring to was the waiver process in August. The Reds were behind the Pirates in the standings, so they could have put a claim in on Bird. Worst that could have happened is that they would have ended up with a player cost them less than $150,000, and that would have prevented the Pirates from getting him at a time when everybody knew the Pirates were looking for a power-hitting outfielder. This was a blunder. Joining us now on tonight's show is my Monday night co-host on the Ohio Baseball Weekly Show, Mark Donahue. We had some technical difficulties on Monday evening, so I decided to have Mark come in here so we could ask a few of the Ask Us questions and also talk about Tuesday night's 
loss to the Pittsburgh Pirates by the Reds in the wild card playoff game. Mark, thanks for uh, joining us here tonight. We just heard Ken Rosenthal of uh, Fox Sports say that the Reds may be kicking themselves today because of the fact that they could have blocked Pittsburgh's acquisition back in July of Marlon Byrd just simply by blocking him on the waiver wire. Would the Reds have even had any interest in, in Marlon Byrd at the time, and do you think they probably should have gone back and blocked that move? Well, hindsight's twenty twenty, but I think it's more than that. Uh, I think the difference between what happened with the Pirates and the Reds is the Pirates were proactive in going out and improving their lineup with Marlon Byrd and and uh, Justin Morneau, Morneau, and that proved to be a major factor, not only in that game on Tuesday night, but down the stretch. The Reds, their offense went to sleep. They had nothing in the tank or nothing on the bench that would help them offensively, and the Pirates went out and were aggressive. The Reds weren't. Uh, the Reds decided that they were going to rely offensively on somebody who had been on the DL for four and a half months in uh, Ludwig as if he was going to come in and deliver them to the promised land. That's that's an absurd hope and prayer, and it proved to be so. He, he simply he left so many guys on base during the, the stint that he played, whereby Bird and Morneau, they produced significantly for the Pirates. And so the Pirates went out and tried to win it. The Reds tried to skate, and it caught up with them, and uh, they're now home watching football. You know, Billy Hamilton came up in September and really seemed to put a jolt into the Reds in September, especially for the first three weeks, and then the last maybe week and a half, the Reds kind of fell off the map. But one of the guys on our Ohio Baseball Weekly show, Douglas, wrote in and said, doesn't the Billy, the way they handled Billy Hamilton throughout the entire year, Mark, really prove that the Reds organization is a complete mess? And his reasoning behind that is Hamilton comes up in September and plays well, and they were looking for a third outfielder the entire year, and they had him right down in their minor league system. What I don't understand, David, is that when you look at what Hamilton did in September, and even if you discount that and assume he wouldn't do quite as well, Let's say he would only steal eight or nine bases a month rather than 13 or 14 like he did. That is still 50 stolen bases. And what that equates to is 50 doubles that somebody is hitting because he's got in the scoring position that many times. He could have hit 225, 235, 240, but with all the bases he would have accumulated, he would have certainly helped the Reds who were in dire need of a jolt in the arm offensively, to say nothing psychologically and emotionally. The team just uh, was flat as a pancake the last couple months of the year, and he, he could have brought a lot of spirit and energy to that team, and why not let him work his way into the, into the lineup for next year? I mean, are, are you telling me that he could not have contributed as much as Derek Robinson? Or even Chris Heisey. Heisey hit 235. Uh, you know, it, it just doesn't make any sense. And this overprotection that the Reds extolled to their players, uh, it, it's just absurd. When you're in, in, in AAA, you are a major league player. And he could have helped in so many ways 
if you were a creative offensive manager, which Dusty Baker is not, uh, I think anybody could see how he could have added a lot of runs to that team. Let's say you brought him up in June. Uh, he could have probably stolen in June, July, August, September. He could have stolen you 40 bases during that, either through his own efforts or pinch running. And that, that could have made easily the difference in, in what the Reds did or did not accomplish in the second half of the year. And it would have really added a lot of excitement to that team. So I agree with our Ask Us uh, caller. Uh, I, I don't get it. And, and I think a lot of people are shaking their heads. And uh, this is the kind of thing that irritates people about Dusty Baker. He, he's just not a creative guy. And he lives in the era of Hank Aaron and the three-run home run, and that's not what this team is going to win with. That's what I wanted to ask you. Does Dusty's managerial philosophy fit with the talent that the Reds have? I don't think so. I think the Reds have the ability. They have a, they have a young team. They still are a very, very young team. And I would just wonder <coughs> what would happen if you brought in somebody uh, – who was in their 30s or 40s, who could inject some spirit into, into this organization, be creative, uh, work with what you got. I'm not saying go out there and sign a bunch of free agents. I don't think you have to do that. I just think the team was mismanaged this year based on the talent that they have and the decisions to, to play people in positions that they simply did not perform in all year. He just kept going back to the well expecting a different result. And that's, unfortunately, it, it got the Reds in trouble. And unless they make a change next year, uh, you're going to have the same kind of result. But you and I were talking earlier today <coughs> about the fact that if you had, um, if they signed Chu and bat him second, you put Hamilton first, you'd have Hamilton, Chu, Votto, or if they go out and sign uh, you know, somebody who can really hit number four, uh, have Vado either three or four, and now you've got a team that's exciting, it's run, it can run, it can, it can bring in some runs, but right now this team is easily pitched to, and that's why they were shut out 16 times this year, and I think they scored one run something like 25 or 30 times. So that, that's, that's ridiculous uh, in this day and age. But they, you know, they live by the three-run home run, and they die by it. But one last thing in terms of uh, people were asking me, they know I'm a Reds nut, you know, how did I feel after the loss? And I would venture to say that Cleveland fans, if they're not, they should be very happy with the performance of the Indians. And even though they got beat in the, in the wild card game, I think there's a lot more disappointment and a lot more depression about the Reds because they severely underperformed this year. And where I see the Indians are on the uptick, I see the Reds certainly that they've uh, hit a plateau here. And unless they make changes to that lineup, this team is not going to get any better. It's only going to get worse. Whereby the Indians, I think, have a, a chance to continue to improve. And I wouldn't be surprised they win the division next year. All right, one more thing about Dusty Baker. Do you think he's back next year? Yeah, I, I think he will be back to start the season, but I, I would bet that if this team gets off to a slow start and uh, emulate what they did in September of this year, he is going to be on the hot seat for sure. 
And, you know, they open the season next year three games against the Cardinals, and, uh, you know, <laughs> things could get ugly early next year. And if that happens, I think Dusty's in trouble. Mark, I want to ask you a question that I thought of the other day. You know, you look at this Reds team, and talent-wise, it should have won the division. I mean, let, let's let's call a spade a spade. It should have won the division. I look at this team the way it played this year as almost what happened, and I know a lot of our listeners can't relate to this, but almost what happened in 69 when the Reds team was full of talent and played like they were sleepwalking through that year, and they needed a change at manager, and they brought in Sparky Anderson, and he brought in the enthusiasm and the discipline that the team needed, and that's what kicked off the big red machine. I'm starting to think that maybe that's the same thing that this Reds team in 2014 is going to need. The Reds have as much talent. You're right, David. They have as much talent as anybody in baseball. And their weakness, I think, right now is all the talent is on the major league roster. They don't don't have a lot of depth in the minor leagues right now. I don't see anybody coming up next year that can help the team, and that's, that's scary. So either you get it by rearranging your lineup, you go out there and find some new talent, but the team has, has good starting pitching. They've got good relief pitching. They play good defense. They've got enough offensive pieces that if they just add one or two, they can, they can really be a very, very strong team. But we knew that going into this year. And that's why I'm so frustrated as a fan because the same critique that we have right now is what we said at the beginning of the year. This team has too many holes in it offensively. You have too many guys who strike out. I mean, Jay Bruce had a good year, hit 30 home runs, drove in 109 runs. But as he said himself, you'd have to be a stone-cold idiot not to drive in 100 runs with Votto and Chu on base as 625 times. I mean, how could you not drive in 100 runs? So you can make the argument that why he had a good year he should have driven in 130, 135 runs. But he strikes out 190 times a year. That You you cannot have that from a guy hitting fourth and fifth. You can't. You, you will not win. So if you bring in somebody who makes contact, and you mentioned Marlon Byrd. Well, if Marlon Byrd had hit fourth for the Reds this year, he would have driven in 125, 130 runs. Because he makes contact. He doesn't strike out a lot. And anybody who is that kind of hitter would have flourished this year. But the Reds refused to make a move at the beginning of the year. They didn't make a move at the trade deadline. They didn't make a waiver deal going into the playoffs. And they're now out of the playoffs. And the Reds are out of the playoffs. Mark Donahue, our guest here tonight. Mark, thanks a lot. We'll be back with our Ohio Baseball Weekly Show on Monday night. Mark and I will be back at 9 o'clock here at Ultimate Sports Talk. Hey, the... Divisional series are getting underway tonight in the National League. Right now, St. Louis is leading Pittsburgh 9-1 to in the sixth inning of that ball game. Uh, they're in the sixth. And later on tonight, in about a half an hour, it will be the Los Angeles Dodgers at Atlanta taking on the Braves. Now, tomorrow the American League gets underway. Tampa Bay will be playing at Boston. That game will be at 3 o'clock on TBS. And then tomorrow night at 9.30, it is Detroit against the Oakland A's. That's out in California. That begins at 9.30 
tomorrow night. Now, in the National League tomorrow, it actually kicks off at 1 o'clock with Pittsburgh at St. Louis. That's at 1 o'clock on the Major League Baseball Network. And then at 6 o'clock tomorrow night on TBS, the L.A. Dodgers will be playing the Atlanta Braves. Those two games will be game twos of the National League Divisional Series. Now, before we move into some football news here tonight, I want to let you know that Jabal Sheard of the Cleveland Browns, Quinton Groves, defensive end Billy Wynn are all inactive for tonight's game against Buffalo. And it just came across the wire. Brandon Whedon is now the backup quarterback for the Cleveland Browns. Jason Campbell, who has been the backup the last couple of weeks but got hurt in practice, is now relegated to third string, and he has been declared inactive for tonight. So if Brian Hoyer goes down, Brandon Whedon is back in the lineup. Let's move into college football now on tonight's Ultimate Sports Talk Show. The USC Trojans finally fired head coach Lane Kiffin after a blowout loss at Arizona State on Saturday. Ed Orgeron was picked as USC's interim head coach by athletic director Pat Hayden on Sunday. The Trojans are 3-2, and 0-2 in the Pac-12. They have eight games left on the 13-game schedule for this season. Hayden fired Kiffin at the Trojans' private airport terminal in Los Angeles when the team plane returned from Arizona early Sunday morning following the Trojans' 62-41 loss in Tempe, but not before a 45-minute meeting in which Kiffin tried to change Hayden's mind. The Trojans matched the most points allowed in school history in their seventh loss in 11 games. Kiffin's overall record in four years at USC was 28-15. and Denver Broncos defensive coordinator Jack Del Rio is expected to emerge as a candidate to replace Kiffin. Fox Sports college football analyst Petros Papadakis agreed that A.D. Pat Hayden had to pull the plug on Kiffin when he did. I would have agreed with the decision to fire Lane Kiffin after the Sun Bowl loss to Georgia Tech last year. I think this got prolonged and it shouldn't have, and it's poisoned this football season for USC. Lane Kiffin was toxic, and he was toxic for this football team. He was so toxic that even the people that defended him at the end of the day became marginalized. There was an incredible negative feeling around the football team at USC, and it was because of Lane Kiffin. And now there's a tremendous sense of relief. So do I agree with the firing? Yes. Lane Kiffin brought an air of discouragement to these players. Right or wrong, that's just what it was. It was clear to see. And this goes way beyond the X's and O's. Lane Kiffin lost this football team somewhere halfway through the season last year when they were ranked number one and finished unranked, the only team ever to have that distinction in the history of football. And he never got the team back. So, USC, if you go down on the field and you know anything about football, you look at these guys, they look like great football players. They're all blue chippers. It's just like Texas. It's a matter of getting somebody in there to motivate them and getting them to play together. And I believe Ed Ogeron, a very motivational coach, a guy who's respected throughout college football, been at USC under three different head coaches, is going to do a great job re-motivating these guys. And they'll win some games, and they'll do it sometimes in dominant fashion because that's the type of players USC has on the football field. It is a great job, but it's a trickier job. It doesn't have the hiring power of Texas, and Texas is going to be hiring too this season. So that gets a little tricky. Texas has more money than everybody, and that is probably the premier job in all of football. 
NFL and college, and I'm not kidding. USC does not have that distinction, but it's still a great job and the premier job on the West Coast. Pat Hayden, the AD, is going to hire a search firm. He already has, but he hired a search firm to help him find a basketball coach and ended up with Andy Enfield, who the search firm did not identify. So they'll go away from that firm as well. To me, it's pretty simple. For the same reason USC fired Lane Kiffin because he had lost the football team, that's the same reason they need to hire Jack Del Rio. Jack Del Rio is a USC guy. He's an older disciplinarian defensive coach. When you have a young, sexy, offensive coach who's not quite a disciplinarian, you kind of replace him with somebody who's the exact opposite. That is Jack Del Rio. And most importantly, a guy like Del Rio wants the job. Mike Riley is not going to come. Chris Peterson would probably go to Texas if he ever left Boise State before he went to USC. John Gruden's probably not going to take that USC job. So you have to get somebody that wants to come on your list. And I believe that guy is Jack Del Rio. Well, if Jack Del Rio does take the job, it is widely speculated that he will stay with the Denver Broncos as their defensive coordinator throughout this season. Elsewhere in college football, the game is on for Army, Navy, and Air Force this weekend, although some other service academy sports are still suspended because of, guess what, the government shutdown. The Defense Department said today that everything was on hold at Navy through Sunday except for Saturday's football game against Air Force. According to the Navy's website, 19 events were either postponed or canceled on Saturday and Sunday, including men's and women's soccer games, swim meets, and a women's volleyball match at home against Colgate. Navy and Air Force received the go-ahead to play football because the game is not funded by the government. A sellout crowd is expected. In fact, revenues upwards of $4 million are even anticipated. Army also will get to play its game at Boston College, too. Here's a look at the top ten college football rankings, according to the Associated Press this week. Alabama stays on top, although they don't have as many first-place votes. Last week they had 56. This week they have 55. And that's because Oregon garnered another first-place vote as they stayed in the number two spot. Clemson, number three. Ohio State, number four. Stanford, number five. Georgia, with the benefit of beating LSU on Saturday night, moved from number nine to number six. Louisville, still unbeaten, is at number seven. Florida State stays at number eight. Texas A&M moved from ten to nine this week, while LSU dropped from number six to number ten. Here's a look at the college football schedule on Saturday for the top 25, and the Ohio State Buckeyes are going to have their biggest game of the season as they travel to Evanston to take on the Northwestern Wildcats. Both teams are unbeaten. As a matter of fact, Urban Meyer, since taking over at Ohio State, is now 17-0 after their big victory at the Horseshoe on Saturday night against Wisconsin. Again, Fox Sports analyst Petros Papadakis takes a look at this football game between OSU and Northwestern. This was a game that was circled for Ohio State because you knew Northwestern was going to play well at the beginning of the season, and you knew Northwestern was going to be undefeated when Ohio State came in to Chicago to play them. Now, that being said, Ohio State is far and away the best team in the Big Ten Conference. Northwestern, very arguably right now at the beginning of October, is the second best team in the Big Ten Conference. Is this a road game like going to Camp Randall? 
No, that is not a stadium that's going to get after you. But Northwestern is a good and disciplined football team. Problem is, so is Ohio State under Urban Meyer, and they have way better players. But if there's going to be an upset this year on Ohio State's schedule in conference, this is the one. Northwestern, obviously well-led. Kane Coulter is a very good quarterback and leader. Seaman, the backup quarterback, can come in and throw the ball around. They're always in the right spot. But again, so is Ohio State. I just don't see the upset here, although it should be a pretty good game to start out. Now look out if Northwestern comes up 21 points in the first quarter and Ohio State has to come back. Could make for an exciting end of the game, but the Buckeyes win either way. I see this game being the toughest contest Ohio State will have for the rest of the season up to the Michigan game and hopefully the national championship game. They can get by this one. I think it's Katie bar the door as far as what the Buckeyes can do the rest of the year. This game is Saturday night on ABC, 8 o'clock, Ohio State against Northwestern. Tonight in college football, number 12 UCLA is going to be at Utah. That's always a good contest. Utah is starting to play better football. That game's at 10 o'clock tonight on Fox Sports. Now, here's the rest of the top 25 schedule. All the games are on Saturday. Number 25, Maryland, will be at number 8, Florida State, in an ACC matchup. Texas Tech, number 20 in the country, will be at Kansas. That ought to be a blowout there. Number 7, Louisville, will be at Temple. Georgia State is at number 7, I'm sorry, number 1, Alabama. Where's Kirk Herbstreet this week talking about whether or not Alabama should schedule Georgia State or not? Number 3, Clemson, will be at Syracuse. Georgia Tech is at number 14, Miami of Florida. Kansas State will play at number 21, Oklahoma State. That ought to be a good one, too, in the Big 12. Minnesota will be at number 19, Michigan. Georgia is at Tennessee. Georgia ranked number 6 in the country. Number 23, Fresno State is at Idaho. Number 2, Oregon goes to Colorado. Arkansas is at number 18, Florida. Number 10, LSU, will be at Mississippi State. That should be another good contest. A very offensive-laden ball game there. Number 24, Mississippi, will be at Auburn. TCU is at number 11, Oklahoma. Arizona State, the 22nd-ranked team in the country, is at Notre Dame. That should be another good contest. Kentucky will be at number 13, South Carolina. West Virginia is at number 17, Baylor. And the final game in the top 25 on Saturday will be on ESPN at 10.30 at night, and that is number 15, Washington, at number 5, Stanford. This is a big Pac-12 contest with long-term ramifications, not only to the Pac-12 conference, but also the Rose Bowl and could be the national championship. Both teams are unbeaten. First place in the conference is at stake. And again, Petros Papadakis says, a lot of great talent will be showcased on the field Saturday night. Bishop Sankey is one of the best backs right now in the NCAA. Keith Price is having a great year. Looks like he did two years ago. He's out there playing free. Shaq Thompson is a great defender. Sean Parker for Washington, a great defender. We talk about the guys that Stanford has all the time and the discipline that David Shaw has on that football team and how smart they are on both fronts. It's a really cool game in that regard. But it's a revenge game. 
Washington beat Stanford last year in Seattle, and they shouldn't have. Stanford physically dominated that football game. They know that when they physically dominate football games, they should win. They have not forgotten about that. Stanford knows how to deal with a team that plays fast. Washington just starting out playing fast on offense. It's a new thing for them this year. I like Stanford on the farm. Well, I like Stanford also to win this football game. Steve Sarkeesian is a great coach at Washington, but I think Stanford's just got too much muscle. Take Stanford over Washington in that game Saturday night. Let's flip over now to the rest of the f- pro football schedule in the NFL. But before we do that, let's take a look at a quick headline out of the NFL. The Tampa Bay Buccaneers have finally released quarterback Josh Freeman. Given the public battles Tampa Bay and Freeman had over his benching over the past week, it was just a matter of time before this happened. Nobody was going to be able to live through what's going on in Tampa Bay. ESPN reporter Adam Schefter said the Bucks pulled the trigger and severed ties with their quarterback. And as a result of this release, Freeman will be entitled to the remaining portion of his $8.5 million salary owed to him by the Buccaneers. FoxSports.com pointed out that because of Freeman's contract, he will become a free agent this afternoon, tonight, just a few hours after his release. Tampa Bay General Manager Mark Dominic addressed Thursday's dismissal of Freeman through a press release on the team's website, saying, The team made the decision today to release Josh Freeman. We appreciate his efforts over the past five years, but we felt this was in the best interest of both Josh and and the Buccaneers. Now, Freeman may not have to go too far to get his new job. There's a team just north of Tampa Bay begging for a quarterback. The fans have been dying for Tim Tebow to come to the Jacksonville Jaguars. But the Jaguars front office has not fallen prey to that idea. This may be a team that Josh Freeman might want to go to, and the Jaguars might be interested in. Freeman, when he came into the league, had a lot of promise, but his attitude seemed to bother him. If he can harness that attitude and move forward in his career, he may be an outstanding quarterback still in the NFL. Well, we've already talked about the Buffalo-Cleveland game tonight. I'm taking the Browns to win this game on the NFL Network, but let's move on now to what's going on Sunday in the NFL. New England is going to be at Cincinnati. This is a big game Sunday afternoon. New England unbeaten, Cincinnati 2-2. Two and two. I'm going to take Cincinnati in this game. Just call it a flyer. That game's going to be on CBS at Paul Brown Stadium. Detroit will be at Green Bay, a big NFC Northern Division matchup. Always a big, nostalgic game between the Lions and the Packers. That game is on Fox at Lambeau Field. Take the Packers. Seattle will be in Indianapolis. Boy, another great contest there. Indianapolis is powerful offense against Seattle's muscular defense. I'm going to go with Seattle in this ball game on Fox at Lucas Oil Stadium. Baltimore is at Miami. The Dolphins are coming off a loss to the New Orleans Saints. Baltimore coming off a loss to the Buffalo Bills. I'm going to take Baltimore in this contest on Sunday at 1 o'clock. Also at 1 o'clock, New Orleans will be at Chicago. Another big ball game in the NFC. I'm going to stick with New Orleans, though, in this game to stay unbeaten over the Bears. Philadelphia will be in New York to take on the Giants. The Giants haven't won yet. Philadelphia still trying to adapt itself to Chip Kelly's offense. This game is at 1 o'clock at MetLife Stadium in New York. I'm going to go with the Giants in this one to win their first game of the season. 
Jacksonville will be at St. Louis. Take the Rams to win this ball game. And the final 1 o'clock game on Sunday, Kansas City is at Tennessee. Take Kansas City to beat the Titans and remain unbeaten. In the 4 o'clock games, only two of them. Carolina is at Arizona. I've got Arizona to win that ball game. And then Denver is at Dallas. This one might be an interesting contest considering that it's in Dallas. The Cowboys are coming off of a loss to San Diego. Denver still unbeaten. Peyton Manning playing maybe the best football of his life. I've still got to go with Denver. That game is at 4.30 on CBS. The Sunday night game, well, that game is Houston at San Francisco. And I'm going to take San Francisco in that ball game. But there is also another Sunday night game, believe it or not. This game is going to be on the NFL Network. It's 11.35. And the reason for this game, San Diego at Oakland, it's because of the playoffs that are going on in Major League Baseball. So there will be two games in Oakland that day. San Diego at Oakland, I go with San Diego in that contest. The Monday night game, the New York Jets at Atlanta, easy pick. Atlanta in that contest. Finally, tonight on the Ultimate Sports Talk Show, Patrick Roy in the NHL says he has been fined $10,000 by the league for his emotional outburst just a day before his Colorado Avalanche coaching debut. Soon after the final horn of their 6-1 win, Roy yelled at Anaheim coach Bruce Boudreaux and then pounded on the glass partition separating the two benches. Roy was livid over a late knee-to-knee hit on rookie Nathan McKinnon. Well, you should see that on TV also. That was quite a display by Patrick Roy. Well, I'm going to get ready for the Browns-Bills game tonight on the NFL Network. Hope you're going to enjoy that. Sad to say that the Ohio Baseball Weekly Show will have their last broadcast this coming Monday night. Mark Donahue and I will go through the final show of the season. That will be Monday night at 9 o'clock here at the Ultimate sportstalk.com website. We'll be back again with that show next year. But this show is going to continue on. We'll be back again next Thursday night at 7 o'clock to bring you more sports information here on the Ultimate Sports Talk Show. That is going to do it for tonight, though. Browns and Bills football coming up in just about a half an hour. I'll talk to you again next Monday night on the Ohio Baseball Weekly Show with Mark Donahue and next Thursday night here at 7. Our thanks to you for listening and our thanks to Greg Mitchell for being our producer. I'm Dave Mitchell. Have a good weekend, everybody. Until next Monday night. Good night. Good night.